Extra Crispy is brought to you in part by our sponsor, Steve's LEDs. Hey, if you need some LED lighting, whether it's aquarium lights or horticultural grow lights, or you got some custom thing that you want to design and you need some help with coming up with that, check out Steve's LEDs, some of the finest quality lighting that money can buy. Don't settle for some of this mass-produced stuff that you find online. Check out Steve's LEDs at stevesleds.com. You won't be disappointed. It's Extra Crispy, a podcast of curious conversations with me, your host, Crispin Schroeder. So today on Extra Crispy, I'm going to be doing the first of a couple of episodes I'm entitling Into the Mystic. We're talking about mysticism. Mysticism is maybe kind of a woo-woo kind of word out there, but you know, mysticism refers to how we encounter the divine. And I'm going to do this episode and I'll probably do another one, which will lead to a third episode, which I will record on Wednesday with Paul Meany. Paul Meany was on this podcast about a year ago. Uh, But a lot of this comes out of a conversation we were having last week on Instagram Live. And we touched on some some really big questions, but I, I felt like to do them justice, I ought to go ahead and lay some groundwork right now, maybe in an episode or two. And that way, when we get into the actual conversation on Wednesday, uh, hopefully I can avoid getting too bogged down in details. And I can just refer people back to this. So all that to say, this is Into the Mystic Part 1. And... Probably in another day or so, I'll do a part two. And if you get any questions while you're listening to this that you would like me to look into, you can send me a direct message on Twitter or Facebook or email me, crispytunes at yahoo.com. All right. Well, let's get ready to get mystical. Into the Mystic, part one. So a few weeks ago, I texted my buddy, Paul Meany, who's been on this podcast before. He was on this podcast about a year ago to, to get him back on the podcast because he's had a lot go on since then. Uh, Paul is famously known as the lead singer of Mute Math, and but since then he has gone on to co-produce 21 Pilots' latest album, Trench. And he's had a few things, interesting things, so I I wanted to get him back on the podcast. Uh, But when I texted him about coming on the podcast, he said, hey, look, you know, I've been doing these Instagram live things on Wednesday nights, 
kind of a Q and a thing. Uh, how about we, we do the podcast live and we can just do it on one of these Instagram live things. So I was like, okay, sure. Great. So I went over to Paul's house last Wednesday night and we went into his studio and getting ready to do the Instagram live thing. And I had a bunch of questions ready to ask Paul, but uh, right before we go on, Paul's like, Hey, how about uh, we dig into some of these issues? And (laughs) I was a, a, a little bit ambushed because I was kind of, you know, on the podcast, unless I'm doing one of these solo episodes, I'm kind of used to being the one who's asking the questions. Um, I'm (laughs) pretty comfortable with talking, but the format was a little odd for me. So we, we get the Instagram live thing going and Paul comes out with, uh, he says, I want to, you know, talk about some questions about faith and the Bible and, uh, some things that he has been talking about with me about these last few years, but really hasn't had many public conversations. So this happened to be the night that he wanted to go ahead and, and, you know, start getting some of this stuff out there. And so he he starts off asking me, um, a real softball kind of question. So, you know, if you take all the mystical elements out of the Bible, would you still believe in it? Something along those lines. And, um, I, I answered the question, but honestly, I went back and listened to the Instagram live thing when I got home and I'm like, ah, you know, I, I really wasn't ready to do that particular format or get into these uh, questions. So I felt like my, my answers were a bit rambling and, and not terribly focused. So I called, uh, I, I texted Paul later that night. I was like, oh man, I, 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 I think I could have done a lot better on that. And, uh, the next day I, I said, Hey, can we, can we do this again? And we'll do it as a podcast. And so Paul is going to be back here this Wednesday night in my studio. And we're going to, uh, record, we're going to pick up the conversation, but I, I figured it would probably be good to go ahead and maybe dig into one or two of these questions in a, I might do one podcast or I might do two before we get to the discussion with Paul on Wednesday because I find these are such big questions that I don't think I can answer in one minute or two minutes uh, because they involve some pretty uh, deep things. I mean, after all, we're talking about God and faith and science and mysticism and psychology. And and uh, so in order to dig into these the best way I figured I'd go ahead and start the conversation on this podcast, start answering some of those things. And and that way I could have a little ground covered. And then when we get in the conversation, hopefully we can streamline things a little bit and it won't be too all over the place. Cause I felt like I was way all over the place and trying to answer these things. And part of that is because honestly, I've been taking these questions so seriously and focusing in on them for years now. Um, and not just, in the sense of theologically or spiritually, but, you know, reading stuff and, uh, pretty broadly from uh, science, um, psychology, philosophy, a lot of different disciplines. So it is something I've given considerable thought to, but I want to try to streamline the way we answer. So the, the first question that he answered, well, well, that he asked 
was if you take all the mystical elements out of the Bible, would you still believe it? That was the basic question. Um, and to that question, uh, I think <laughs> the first thing, and, and I will ask Paul this when we get to Wednesday night, is what do you mean by mystical? It, it seemed uh, from the examples that Paul was giving was Paul was referring a bit more to the miraculous aspects, you know, everything or the, the supernatural aspects, um, the virgin birth, uh, the resurrection, those types of things. Uh, however, I guess when I think of mysticism, you know, mysticism is a word that is, it's a pretty, pretty large encompassing term. And I, I would say, you know, mysticism really is about connecting with the divine. And so the first thing I would say is that if you took all the mystical elements out of the Bible, I don't think you would have the Bible. You wouldn't have much left. So in that sense, I would say um, I don't think I would believe in the Bible because I don't think there'd, there'd be much left of the Bible. Because the Bible, after all, is a story that really deals with connection with the divine. Um, now, so... So I would say that number one. Uh, but as it as maybe what Paul was actually getting at was you know okay you take away a lot of the miraculous stuff is it still uh, is it still a book that is authoritative? And I think that question in itself um, reveals certain types of assumptions that people have about the Bible. Um, so if I'm coming to the Bible as if, if, if I see the Bible as if it is merely a book that is supposed to answer all the questions in my life and, uh, you know, kind of the, the typical fundamentalist uh, idea of inerrancy, biblical inerrancy, or biblical literalism, um, yeah, I guess if if you take those things away, then then um, it probably wouldn't work. But that said, that's not the way that I've come to view the Bible. Um, I do believe that the Bible um, is authoritative. I believe it has authority, and I believe that it is inspired. But it's a very complicated book, and I think this this is the the problem um, is that so much of that question, oftentimes when we ask it, it is framed by this way that we have been conditioned, not just by fundamentalism. I think it's it's actually quite a reaction to uh, the Enlightenment and rationalistic, materialistic kind of things in the area of science that we turn, tend to treat the book as if it is merely a rule book or a manual. And I don't think that's the best way to treat it. Honestly, I don't think that's the way the original people who gave us the Bible, whether it's uh, you know the Jews that, of the Old Testament or the Jews of the New Testament. It's a Jewish book all the way around. Um, I don't think any of them understood the book in that way. So the the first thing we have to deal with is fundamentalism is not the most natural way that anybody has approached this book. It's, it's quite interesting when you look at the Christians in the first few centuries, um, 
after the stories of the Bible, uh, the, the dominant way of reading much of the Bible was allegory. And this is partly because, uh, you know, the church really began expanding among um, Gentiles, non-Jewish people. Good news for us <laughs> who aren't Jewish. And and so I, I think part of it was just being Gentiles, looking at these stories in the Old Testament um, that were not their stories. It didn't come from their people. It was another whole group of people encountering God. They... You know, they had to figure out how to make sense of this in a way that actually applied to their lives. So, you know, um, so they often employed allegory. So instead of actually looking at these stories in terms of literal stories, whether there was actually a talking snake in the garden or whether the Red Sea actually got parted or whether uh, David and Goliath was a real thing, they looked at them allegorically like, OK, what is the what is the wisdom that can be gleaned from these things and applied to our life? Um, so I think it is interesting that, that even the original people who were closest to the Bible, oftentimes they did not, you know, there's nowhere, nothing that we see where anybody applied anything like the modern day fundamentalism to their understanding of the text. So I think modern day fundamentalism is actually not the most natural way to read it. And I think that's one of the biggest problems because really fundamentalism uh, that you know really began to spring up in Christianity in a big way in the mid 1800s, because a lot of Christians saw the the advancement of the Enlightenment, scientific thinking, philosophy, all this progress that was being made. They really saw it as Christians often have, you know, when it comes to scientific progress, they saw it as a threat to the Bible. And you have to understand that, that prior to the Enlightenment happening, you had something called the Protestant Reformation. And so the Protestant Reformation happened right out about 500 years ago, the anniversaries last year. And in the Protestant Reformation, it was some much-needed re- reform for a lot of corruption within the Catholic Church. But Martin Luther, who started this... Um, In rebelling against the Pope, (laughs) he established the Bible as the new authority. So you see the authority shifts from the Pope now to this book. And it was a very different day because, you know, because of the printing press and because of Martin Luther's focus on this idea that that Paul speaks of the priesthood of all believers, you know, the approach to the Bible had become very democratized. Now this book was the authority. We don't need a Pope. We don't need some external authority. We have this, this book and anybody can approach it and understand it uh, in the most natural way. So that in and of itself, um, while there was some much needed correction needed on the Catholic church of the day, um, it, it shifted things in the religious landscape of Christianity to now everybody is, Everybody's got a copy of this book now, uh, or, or a lot of people. Literacy uh, rates were beginning to climb, partly due to Protestants wanting everybody to read so they could read the Bible. Um, but now you have the, the the authority is now moved from from this very hierarchical thing to this book now. And I think that that's when this book starts getting treated 
uh, we see the beginnings of, of fundamentalism, and now there's all this wars over doctrines. And that's really where you start seeing, you know, after the Protestant Reformation, uh, the amount of denominations that we end up in the world with today, is, I, I think the numbers are over 40,000 different denominations in the world. And most of these denominations are disagreements over the Bible. Uh, there was a great book I read uh, by a guy named, I think it was Christian Smith uh, a few years ago called The Bible Made Impossible. And he said, you know, everybody talks about the Bible as if it's the the easiest book to understand. If he said the Bible, if the Bible was actually that easy to understand, we wouldn't have 40,000 different denominations if it was that clear. The problem is with the Bible, um, especially if you're trying to be a fundamentalist, is the Bible has so many different voices saying so many different things about so many different issues. It's not univocal. It's not one voice. You can find contradictions. Uh, and maybe contradiction is, is even the wrong word. You just see an evolving understanding of God throughout the Bible. And I've, I've made this point before, but the Bible, it, it's a complicated book. It's not even a book. It's a collection of books that were written between 1,000, 1,500 years, period, by multiple different authors in different contexts that were very different, different languages, different genres. In the Bible, you it's not even one genre. You have history, you have law books, you have wisdom literature, you have erotic poetry right in the middle of it, the Song of Solomon. You got song lyrics, the Book of Psalms. You got apocalyptic literature, which was its own form of metaphoric, symbolic literature employed by prophets. You've got the Gospels, you've got epistles, all kinds of things. So I, I think part of the problem with going back to that question is that question assumes a certain framework. And, and I, don't, I don't live within that framework anymore, and I think that's part of me making peace with the Bible. I've come to see that the, that the Bible, to me, I think one of the best ways to understand it, uh, and I think I said this in our, our original conversation me and Paul had on this podcast a year ago, to see the, the Bible as descriptive rather than prescriptive. The Bible describes people's encounter with the divine or trying to encounter or trying to live in the light of the divine over a very long period of time in different literary styles and different contexts. And it describes that. It doesn't answer all of our questions. And that's, I think, the big hang up that we have because we, you know, the dominant view in modern evangelical Christianity is that this book is supposed to answer everything. Well, what happens when the answers are contradictory? And, you know, I had Pete Enns on this podcast. Um, I think it might have been the last episode. Yeah, I think it was the last episode. Uh, Pete Enns was on this podcast, and I'm almost I'm halfway through with his book called How the Bible Really Works, which I would highly recommend. It is really good. And Pete Enns makes the case that the Bible is best understood as a book of wisdom. Uh, and that wisdom is, it's not just like good advice for living, but the, the Bible oftentimes in offering these two different contradicting view contradicting views of 
what you're supposed to do. And you can find this all over the book of Proverbs, for instance. Uh, The Bible, by giving you these two different views, it's inviting you to grapple with what is right, what is good, where God may want you to go with things. So the Bible is really more of an invitation to wisdom, and it gives you ways to consider things. And so, (laughs) and wisdom is of a completely different quality than just getting an answer. You know, you can read, I just got a new piece of equipment in my studio, and I can read the manual. A lot of times I have to go onto YouTube and figure out what they mean, (laughs) what they're saying. But I can get the answers. I can get the answers for how to do something. But just knowing how to do something doesn't mean that I can create something compelling with it. Uh, wisdom is of a different, it, it's a much bigger thing. It's, it's much more transcendent. And so I think looking at the Bible as descriptive rather than prescriptive, describing this movement of the divine through humanity and humanity trying to live in life with that is a, is a huge component. I think seeing the Bible as a book of wisdom is huge. And when you begin to look at it that way, it's a wonderful book. Um, you know, I mean, I was really struggling with the Bible, partly because I'm a pastor, but you know, it's, I think as a pastor, you, you, I know a lot of pastors who struggle with the Bible and they can't talk about it because they're afraid like people are going to be worried about them. Like, like you're supposed to be the guy that has all the confidence in it. But actually in, in studying the Bible, it, there's times where it just, things don't make sense. They're not as clear as you want them. It's not answering your questions. Well, I said this on an episode a while back, uh, a few months ago, an invitation to wrestle, which I would highly recommend that goes into this descriptive versus uh, prescriptive understanding. But I'd say there's there's also another aspect, you know, when it comes to the to the supernatural aspects of the Bible, whether it's the talking snake in the Garden of Eden or the burning bush or even the incarnation of Christ or, or the resurrection. Um, what if these things aren't true? What if they didn't historically actually happen? You know, I have no problem with the cross and the resurrection and the incarnation. I mean, I really do believe that. I believe that myself. But honestly, I think even when you look at the miracles of Jesus, asking the question, did this really happen exactly the way it was recorded or is this something made up? I don't think is the most helpful question. And again, I think that question goes back to this this fight between fundamentalism and, and you know, scientific rationalism. Uh, I think a better question to ask is whether these things are actually true historically, whether they actually happened the way they were recorded or not, what is the meaning? Because there's so much meaning with it. You can take, uh, for instance, the, the first recorded miracle of Jesus in the Gospel of John is where Jesus turns water into wine at a wedding. And you can look at that story and you can go, well, you know, I've never seen anybody turn water into wine. If I did, it, you know, it'd probably be one of these illusionists and, you know, maybe that's a party trick or something. And, um, but if you actually read the story and go, what, what does it mean symbolically? Because even the writer of the gospel of John, uh, 
you know, they edited the story because they were taking certain stories of Jesus and they were putting them together to to uh, communicate a point. What is the points going on in this? And, and when you look at that, well, this this story can be seen from a lot of different vantage points. You know, this it, it's an interesting story because the the people that get in on this miracle, it's not Jesus's disciples. Jesus doesn't stand up at the feast and do, do some magic trick. The miracle is mostly unnoticed by everybody there, except for the servants. Jesus tells them, you know, go get these ceremonial jars, these vessels that held a great deal of water, and they were used uh, as part of Judaism, to ritual purity. So you'd come into somebody's house and you would wash your hands in these jars, and you'd be, you'd be ritually pure and clean so you could participate. Jesus tells them, fill those up with some water and then take some, some of the liquid out and go give it to the head of the feast. And so the servants do that. And, and look, this would have been somewhere around the neighborhood of like 160 gallons of wine, <laughs> a lot of wine, which is I th- one of the reasons I think, you know, a lot of people are offended with this miracle. They're like, no, Jesus made grape juice. Well, in, in the story, they start serving this wine. And only the servants actually know what's happened, which is kind of cool because how many wedding receptions have I been to where like the, the waiters who are walking around, they, nobody pays attention to the waiters. When a waiter starts coming to you, you don't look at the waiter. You, your, your attention goes to what they're carrying on the tray. Is it Southwest egg rolls or shrimp or whatever? And the waiters get in on it. And so the, the, the guy who's presiding over the feast, he tastes some of the wine. He's like, what's, what's going on here? <laughs> This is the good, this is really good wine. Well, they'd already served the good wine. <laughs> but people began murmuring. They said, you know, normally at a wedding, normally at a, at a feast, you serve the good wine first until everybody gets drunk, and then you bring out the cheap stuff. But these people have saved the best for last. Who does that? And there's so many ways you can look at this story. I mean, the wine, symbolic of, you know, the new covenant, uh, the wine is, you know, wine is symbolic of, of, of an actual living process as, as compared to just water. You know, there's fermentation. Um, this was a wedding feast. This was a union, a coming together. Uh, the fact that this miracle is done with these old ceremonial pots, that there's, there's symbolic there, you know, that something new and alive is springing up within the old. The fact that the people who get in on this miracle are, are the the very people that nobody's paying attention to. Uh, this, this says so much about the ministry of Jesus. And you can, you can look at so many of the things that Jesus said, whether it's the parable of the prodigal son, uh, so many of these miraculous stories, and you can, you can argue over whether they happen or not, but, but if, you, if you look with different eyes at, at this, the, the sim, symbolism, the metaphor uh, in these, they are filled with meaning and wisdom and instruction that can illuminate things. Even, even when you look at the, the cross and the resurrection, uh, a lot of people have a hard time believing the resurrection um, <laughs> because we don't know people who come back from the dead. I mean, that's, that's completely out of <laughs> the realm of anything that any of us have seen. Um, and like I said, I don't have a problem with believing in an actual resurrection, but I think even if you look at the life of Jesus, 
as a metaphor for the spiritual journey, it works quite well that way too. You know, Jesus, we're told that God steps into our world. He becomes one of us, God with us. And I think that's uh, that right there, as I've said on previous podcasts before, I think that's just one of the most beautiful things in the world. Like the, the, the creator of everything, universal out there, the, the God that everyone experiences, if you have breath in your lungs, that you are sustained by this God. This God who is universal then becomes particular, becomes human, becomes one of us, moves into our neighborhood, faces everything that we will face for 30 years, you know, just being a regular guy. And then he goes into public ministry. And then eventually that ministry gets him in trouble. It leads to persecution. It leads to suffering. It ultimately leads him to a place of having to trust his life to God and go to the cross and die. But then comes resurrection. I think you, you look at that picture. That's the spiritual journey. If you've ever endeavored to go down a spiritual journey to start living um, by love and goodness and forgiveness and, and not to just be in, in the realm of ego and pride and jealousy, if, you, if you've ever actually endeavored to do that, it will lead you to some times in your life where you feel like you are dying, where you got to surrender, where you got to let go. It feels like the end. And right when you get to that point, new life begins to emerge. This is, you know, in a, in a sense, you know, that's one of the biggest things in the spiritual journey is learning to die to your ego, to stop living for the approval of other people and the applause of other people and to live from genuine transformation on the inside. So, and, and, and to me, when I look at the Jesus story, yes, I believe personally that it happened. Uh, whether all the details are, are exactly the way it happened or not, I do believe it. I have no problem believing in the resurrection. Um, but I find, even the more that I go on the journey, I find the power of it, even as a metaphor, is super powerful in my own life. So that's probably enough on that one question. <laughs> and as you can see, that took me 30 minutes. And this is probably why the Instagram live format was not the best way for me to try to answer one of these questions. Cause I, I really did feel put a little on the spot and constrained because it wasn't, I mean, I'm on Paul's thing. It's his thing. So I, I wanted to go ahead and get this, start digging into these topics. And I think on the next one that I'm going to post, I'll do another one about this length. And I want to dig into the question of mysticism and religion. Um, how important the mystical experiences in our life, having actual encounter with the divine, um, how that's different from what we see in religion, how that's usually the birth of religion, but how, how religion can often hinder that. Whereas we still need religion. <laughs> and, and so, um, I want to dig into those ideas, like like how mystic, mysticism serves the spiritual journey, serves transformation, can can help one experience freedom from addictions and 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 learn to live more loving and engaged with life, but how religion can either be a hindrance to that or can actually help one integrate those lessons into life. So. That's all I'm going to say about it for right now. This has been 
a pretty lengthy answer to the first question. But thanks for listening. I'll probably try to get one more episode out before I have a conversation with Paul here on Wednesday. And hopefully by that point, I don't have to, you know, dig into all this stuff because I've at least laid it out there. So thanks for listening to Extra Crispy, Into the Mystic, Part 1.